Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature awarding ingenuity, sonic screwdrivers and dental fear. But first up, here's the news with Ed Pollitt. Another win for crowdsourcing, it seems that social media can help health professionals to understand why so many people exhibit DFA, or dental fear and anxiety. A team of researchers from universities in China, Malaysia and the University of Western Australia went to YouTube to watch scenes of children and teens reacting strongly to the prospect of visiting the dentist. They discovered that DFA has a variety of manifestations, impacts and origins some of which only became apparent when using internet and social media. All up, they found 182 videos from which they analysed 27 of children or adolescents, both male and female, and three that also included adults. The study published in the Journal of Medical Internet Research said videos often showed immediate physical reactions such as crying piteously, screaming forcefully and shivering uncontrollably. It seems that horror stories from parents or friends contribute significantly to young people's DFA, which is known to then lead to uncooperative behaviour during dental visits, and even extends to delays in treatment, sleep disorders and psychological issues that can affect daily life, said research co-author Winthrop Professor Nigel King. The conclusion offered by the study is that incorporating these emotional responses, along with in-depth interviews with young patients and their parents, may help them to regulate their emotions while they face other challenges in life. Researchers from the University of Auckland have developed the world's most detailed 3D computer models of the heart's upper chambers. Up until now, scientists have only been able to reproduce the shape and wall thickness of the heart's atria. University of Auckland Research Fellow Dr Jikao Zhao spent the past two years processing data from 700 extremely thin image slices of the atria to use in his new computer model. He's now able to show, for the first time, a detailed and realistic 3D image of the arrangement of muscle fibres throughout the heart's atrial chambers, right down to the cellular level. To achieve this, Dr. Zhao and his colleagues at the university's Auckland Bioengineering Institute developed a suite of new image processing tools. These tools allowed Dr. Zhao to extract structural information from the images, enabling him to examine the effects of the arrangement of muscle fibres on electrical signals in the atria. Dr. Zhao's atria model is being used to examine the mechanisms behind persistent atrial fibrillation a debilitating heart condition that causes a completely irregular heartbeat which doesn't go away. In New Zealand, about a quarter of the population who are older than 40 will develop atrial fibrillation in their lifetime, 
putting them at a higher risk of not only heart failure, but also thrombosis and stroke, says Dr. Zhao. His work on the new modelling program will enable doctors to much more easily diagnose and simulate the physics of the electrical circumstances of the heart that lead to heart complications such as this. Like all relationships, our association with the moon has had its ups and downs. We've seen how the moon interacts with the Earth, raising tides as it gradually recedes into space, and the way that the moon may have helped to shape life on Earth. But what about human interaction with the moon, past, present and future? Since we first looked at the sky, the moon has played a prominent role in our stories and mythology. It's only natural that once humans learnt how to escape Earth's gravitational pull, the moon would be the first place we'd visit. Stories of trips to the moon date back at least 2,000 years. Much of the current exploration of the moon is focused on the idea it might be possible one day to return, and perhaps even mine there for precious resources such as helium-3, which is incredibly rare on Earth, but thought to be much more common in the lunar regolith, as a result of its continuous bombardment by the solar wind. To that end, the Chinese lunar lander and rover mission, Chang'e 3, is currently scheduled for launch late this year. If successful, it will be the first time we have successfully made a soft landing on the moon's surface since Russia's Luna 24 in 1976. With many thanks to Science Alert, the Auckland Bioengineering Institute, and Jonty Horner of the University of New South Wales. The Science of Doctor Who. The Doctor is one of the few heroes of fiction who uses his intelligence and knowledge to solve crises instead of violence. The Doctor doesn't beat the bad guys up, he outthinks them. And he has some nice toys. Let's start with the TARDIS. A ship that travels through time and space, which is permanently disguised as a 1960s London police telephone box, and it's bigger on the inside. TARDIS is an acronym that stands for Time and Relative Dimensions in Space. This offers the clue. The TARDIS is a tesseract. A tesseract is defined as a four-dimensional hypercube. Just like you can draw two-dimensional squares on paper and fold them through the third dimension to make a three-dimensional cube, you can fold three-dimensional cubes through a fourth spatial dimension to make a four-dimensional hypercube a tesseract. In the case of the 3D cube made up of 2D squares, you could fit an infinite number of two-dimensional squares into the three-dimensional cube because the squares have no three-dimensional thickness. They're infinitely thin. So a cube is bigger on the inside, 
from the perspective of a two-dimensional person from Flatland. Even if the squares had a very tiny thickness in the third dimension, you could fit a huge number of them inside your three-dimensional cube, even if it appears to be only made of six squares. In the same way, when you fold your eight cubes through the fourth dimension to make a hypercube, each of the cubes will have little to no thickness in the fourth spatial dimension. The hypercube TARDIS will appear bigger on the inside to three-dimensional people because you can stack a very large number of three-dimensional cubes into a four-dimensional space. So while the appearance of a British police phone box might be an illusion, being bigger on the inside is just a consequence of being folded through the fourth dimension, time and relative dimensions in space. Why a police telephone box? In 1963, there were no mobile phones, so police on foot needed a way to report back to base and request backup, so police-only telephone boxes were all over Britain. In the story, the chameleon circuit on the TARDIS is stuck, so it always appears as a police box, even when it's wrong for the time and place. A book I recommend for visualising things moving and being built in the fourth dimension is The Fourth Dimension and How to Get There by Rudy Rucker. The sonic screwdriver has been the Doctor's constant companion since it was introduced in 1968, and originally used as a tool for picking locks, sometimes to remotely detonate mines, and probe things. In the 21st century, this seems like something we could almost build ourselves. Locksmiths and amateur lockpickers know you can pick many locks by shaking a pick inside them while twisting. If you could produce a sound matching the resonant frequency of the lock, mine or other gadget that you wanted to shake up or move a little, then you could make a primitive sonic screwdriver. You'd need to generate sound to order, to focus the sound so you're only changing the thing you want to change and not everything around you, and you'd need a way for the device to work out what its effect was, to read what was happening. This might be a computer chip with a digital to analogue conversion, and a speaker. Sound lenses exist, and the device could have a microphone for listening to sounds emitted by the target in between pulses of sound from your screwdriver. So, if you're in a cell with a mechanical lock and you need to escape, you point your sonic screwdriver at it and it emits chirps of sound that are focused on the lock, sweeping from low frequencies to higher ones. When the microphone hears the same tone being echoed by the lock after a chirp, it knows the lock is vibrating because that tone is the resonant frequency of the lock. Just like an opera singer can sing a note that matches the resonant frequency of a wine glass, causing it to vibrate and shatter. The lock shakes, you turn the lock, and it opens. Making sound from a pocket device has been done for decades. Any pocket radio or mobile phone can do that, with well-understood electronics and a speaker. But how do you focus sound? Like with light, you can make a lens that focuses sound, and dolphins have a sound lens growing in the middle of their foreheads. A membrane filled with gas or liquid will mediate the sound, and the shape determines how the waves are affected. The sound waves bend because of the difference in the refractive index between the air and the material inside the lens. That is, the sound waves travel at a different speed inside the lens than they do through the air or water outside the lens. Doctors routinely use focused sound waves to blast apart kidney stones and prostate tumours. The problem is that the focal spot is a few centimetres, and they'd rather it was much more precise for surgery and imaging. 
Now, this might let you shake a lock up, but it wouldn't get the finer locks and it wouldn't turn anything. The other technique might be to use a curved acoustic mirror, basically a parabolic dish to focus the sound. Once again, this won't let you be very precise and a pocket version won't reach very far. Physicists at the Longevin Institute of Waves and Images at the Graduate School of Industrial Physics and Chemistry in Paris built an array of 7x7 emptied soft drink cans. The array was surrounded by eight speakers. A pure tone was played through the speakers, with sound waves moving around and inside the cans, making them oscillate like organ pipes. The complex resonance patterns caused by the interference of the waves inside the cans caused sound waves of much smaller wavelength than the original to be emitted from the opening of the cans. They recorded the sound above a single can with a microphone and then played this sound backwards through the speakers. This had the effect of amplifying the sound from that one can and cancelling out the sound from all the other cans. As this one can sound resonates inside the can, the waves inside scatter into tiny waves and when they escape that can, they focus strongly on a spot a few centimetres long, which is many times smaller than the original sound wave. The researchers hope to be able to use this technique to make very sharp images with ultrasound, to look at tissues that are smaller than the wavelength of the sound we can generate. The array of cans is acting like a metamaterial. Metamaterials with a negative refractive index for light have been in the news for making things invisible by bending light around them. In acoustic metamaterials, the sound waves could be bent to focus them. A phononic crystal would be made of a metamaterial that bends light in such a way that we can focus the sound very precisely. At the University of Manitoba in Canada, they created a simple phononic crystal by immersing an array of 0.8mm tungsten carbide beads in water, precisely stacked in an arrangement that resembles oranges in a crate. When you play sound at 1MHz frequency at the array of beads, it generates a sound wave that cancels the sound out, just like the negative sound with the Coke cans, and stops it getting inside the crystal. This anti-wave has lows where the original wave has highs, and highs where the other one has lows. And the result is silence. The frequency is set by the diameter of the beads. Now if you play sound that's higher than the forbidden 1 MHz frequency, you get stranger effects. At 1.57 MHz, the sound wave's bent towards a focal point just below the slab. Another approach is from the University of Michigan, where they're using sound lenses made from carbon nanotubes. The team was able to concentrate high amplitude sound waves to a spec just 75 by 400 micrometers, where a micrometer is one thousandth of a millimeter. Lead researcher Jay Guo hopes he can use the precise sound beam as an invisible knife for painless surgery. His idea is that the beam is so precise that the surgeon can avoid nerve fibres. Their technique is to convert light into sound. The researchers coated their sound lens with a layer of carbon nanotubes and another layer of rubbery material called polydimethylsiloxane. The carbon nanotube layer absorbs the light and gets hot. Then the rubbery layer, which expands when it's exposed to heat, drastically boosts the signal by quickly expanding from the heat. The rapid expansion generates a sound wave. 
In experiments, the researchers accurately detached a single ovarian cancer cell and blasted a hole less than 150 micrometres in an artificial kidney stone in less than a minute. Their paper, Carbon Nanotube Optoacoustic Lens for Focused Ultrasound Generation and High-Precision Targeted Therapy, was published in the journal Scientific Reports. So how do you make sound turn things like a lock? In the American Physical Society's journal Physical Review Letters, Dundee University's Institute for Medical Science and Technology published a paper called Mechanical Evidence of the Orbital Angular Momentum to Energy Ratio of Vortex Beams about rotating focused sound beams. They created twisting ultrasound using a thousand element array of transducers. In tests, the device was able to lift and turn a rubber disc floating in water. If your cell is locked by a rubber disc floating in water, this is your tool. Their aim is for a medical device that could guide capsules around the body without surgery and manipulate individual cells. The research forms part of a UK-wide Engineering and Physical Science Research Council project known as Sonotweezers, which aims to bring dexterity and flexibility to ultrasonic manipulation, allowing applications in a wide range of topics including regenerative medicine, which applies to Doctor Who, tissue engineering, developmental biology and physics. When this all becomes pocket-sized and all comes together, this will let us build the first model sonic screwdriver. I have a question to ask you about sonic screwdrivers. Of course you can buy toy sonic screwdrivers. You can buy quite sophisticated toy sonic screwdrivers. How close do you think they might be to producing perhaps not something that looks like the doctor's sonic screwdriver, but um, something usable? It looks to me like with all of this research into metamaterials Mm. that they're going to get something that works reasonably soon for surgery. And Fantastic. things for surgery have to be at least handheld. It might be attached to a big device originally. Mm. But then it's just a matter of miniaturization, which we do pretty quickly these yeah. days. Exponentially almost. So it could be there in maximum 10 years, I reckon. Right. Um, of course, it's very difficult to put time frames on future predictions. It's very difficult to do. Plus, wait, it's physically possible, which is a big box to tick for yeah. this sort of thing. Lovely. And the beginnings of the technology, including being able to turn it in the Sono Tweezer project. Oh, I love that word. <laughs> I love that name, Sono Tweezers. I mean, if you can build a Sono Tweezer, then you can build a pocket Sono Tweezer. Right. I think. So I don't know what the time frame is. I have to look a bit further into that project and mm. perhaps try and access the paper that I referenced there yeah. more completely. Um. Who knows, perhaps they could do it in five, but I'd give them ten at the outset. Fantastic. Oh, that's so exciting, Ian. Perhaps if you'd like to, if our listeners would like to, us to go into more detail about this. Yes, so send us an email. Us. Send us an email, diffusion at 2SCR.com. Write on our Facebook page, Diffusion Science Radio, and like us. Please. And, Ed, are you on Twitter? I am, actually. What's your handle on Twitter? It's... Obviously, the at sign, uh, a shorthand form of Roger that, R-G-R-T-H-T. 
So look for Ed on at RGRTHT and look for me at Ian Wolf on Twitter and have a chat. Tell us what you'd like to hear. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. We'd love to do things that you love to hear. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And please like us on Diffusion Science Radio on Facebook. Next up, Ed Pollitt reports on the Rolex Awards for Enterprise, which rewards projects that improve lives. Do you have an idea or ongoing project that helps to improve lives or protect the world's precious natural or cultural heritage? If so, a sweet 100,000 Swiss francs or 101,000 of our Aussie dollars could help out rather a lot, I expect. Even 50,000 francs if you're between 18 and 30, which is still nothing at all to sneer at. And for more than 35 years, Rolex has honoured extraordinary individuals, perhaps just like yourself, who possess the courage and conviction to take on major challenges. Launched in 1976 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Oyster Chronometer, the world's first waterproof watch, the Rolex Award for Enterprise has been bestowed upon 125 remarkable individuals so far. Their projects have ranged from Africa to Antarctica, from applied technology through science, health and the environment to cultural heritage, and from ages 25 to 74. 30,000 people from 154 countries have applied to be judged by 122 experts over the years. But enough of the dry numbers. Let's move on to the exciting bits. The awarded projects have had some compelling common themes begin to emerge. You can imagine the scenario, can't you? Scientifically elegant and often simple human-sized solutions to globe-sized problems. For example, an ingenious pot that can help keep food fresh for longer, lamps that are safe enough to use in developing countries, a way to light an entire village with just 100 watts, and making every raindrop count are among the amazing initiatives that have been awarded so far. Marine conservationist Brad Norman, a 2006 laureate of the Rolex Award, is an Australian who created a photo identification system to protect the elusive whale shark. He based it on a pattern recognition method that was originally invented to study constellations in the night sky. The system will soon enable scores of coastal communities and thousands of individual divers to gather information about this gentle giant of the seas. The images they provide will help scientists understand its mysterious way of life and protect this charismatic species. It takes science out of the lab, says Brad, and puts it in the hands of the public. Everyone can take part. Sounds a little bit like the Galaxy Zoo crowdsourcing project Ian and I chatted about last week. Andrew Muir is a 2008 South African laureate whose project is to provide training and jobs to young people orphaned by AIDS. His Umziwetu program is harnessing the healing powers of nature to help young people orphaned by HIV-AIDS to become independent citizens. It provides vulnerable but motivated youths with vocational training and jobs in the burgeoning ecotourism industry, while immersing them in their country's rich natural heritage. Andrew says, 
The vulnerability of these orphans has generally been 18 years in the making, and will need something pretty intense and all-embracing to turn it around. And lastly, British Air Force Lieutenant Kenneth W. Hankinson, a 1984 laureate, who believes, Stamina and a stable temperament are as important as physical fitness, explored Brabant Island in Antarctica, and researched the effects of prolonged exposure to cold. He and 34 young men in the UK's armed services became the first people to spend an Antarctic winter in tents, and the first to navigate canoes so close to the South Pole. During their 16-month project, they made pioneering studies of the effects of prolonged exposure to cold, and surveyed the biology and geology of Antarctica's largest unexplored island. So, you may, as I am, be a little intimidated by the company you might be seeking to keep among these aspiring visionaries. But as my father, whose opinion I respect, often tells me, fortune favours the brave. I encourage you to find that limb that needs stepping out on and jump up and down on it. You may very well be one of the many things this world so badly needs right now. Applications for the 2014 awards close May 31st. Go to rolexawards.com. And as Leo da Vinci himself once said, It had long since come to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely sat back and let things happen to them. They went out and happened to things. I'd like to offer my sincere thanks to the Rolex Awards website for much of the source material for this story. That was Ed Pollitt reporting on the Rolex Awards for Enterprise, for people who happen to things. For more information, go to rolexawards.com. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send your contributions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or go to the Diffusion Science Radio Facebook page and like us. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to this program was Ed Pollitt. And Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.